Well, if you have your Bibles here, um, you turn please to Exodus chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 1 all the way to chapter 6, verse 13. So buckle up. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people And you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. 
God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them to the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from, the, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as, as for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is truth, that brings life, that renews our weary hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that Christ would be glorified through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of us can agree that times are tough here in South Africa. Whether it's corruption or load shedding or economic decline, I don't need to carry on and depress you with, with that long list. But the elections are around the corner. In under 90 days, we will be heading to the polls. And it's absolutely possible that this election could bring about a positive change. But there's also the real possibility that things may get a whole lot worse. And that we would be longing for, for, for these days right now in months and years to come. That... Come 29th of May, we will jump from the pan into the fire. Now, in our text this morning, we see that Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh and ask them to let the people of Israel go. And obviously, Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to do that. And on top of that, he significantly increases the burden of uh, the Israelite slaves and the, the brutality and cruelty that they're experiencing. And so we could say that they are now all of a sudden pushed from the pan into the fire. 
They thought that things couldn't get worse than they had before, but now they realize they just have. And it seems like a sick joke because Moses and Aaron have just explained to the Israelites yeah, in, the, in, in chapter 4 that, that, that God is about to deliver them and release them from, from slavery and bring them into the promised land. And now they in in utter disbelief and that promise to them is, is really now hard to believe in their newfound circumstances. So what we're going to see here this morning is that even though things may get very bad and it may even seem that God is, is nowhere to be found, that he's not keeping his promises to us, The truth is that he remains faithful even when we are faithless. So three points this morning. Firstly, who is the Lord? Secondly, when things don't go according to plan. And lastly, God is faithful. So first off, who is the Lord? Now, if you remember, last week we we looked at uh, Exodus 4 and there we saw God give to Moses some signs, miracles to be performed before the elders of Israel. And the purpose of those signs was to confirm to them that he is indeed God. He's Yahweh. He's heard their cries for help. And he's now going to come and deliver them and be faithful to his covenant promises that he'd made to their father Abraham. And bring them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And you remember the last verse in chapter 4 that we looked at last week um, went like this. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, so now they've heard these wonderful promises. They believe, they trust in the Lord. They're thankful that he's about to deliver them. Chapter 5 opens up now. Verse 1 Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say to him in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, shame, we've been quite harsh with Moses, especially last week, but we've got to sympathize um, with him here and um, in a way admire him. Hey, that he's, he's now pulled through his, his waverings and his, his hesitancy and his doubts. He, remember, he gave every excuse in the book to get out of the task that God had called him to. But now he's pulled through along with his brother. And we've got to admire his great courage and faith in doing so. Because remember, they have now, these, these mere Hebrew slaves have presented themselves before the most powerful man on earth, the supreme leader of Egypt, most powerful kingdom at at that time, the greatest superpower. And they, these mere Hebrew slaves, are telling him that God wants him to let the people of Israel go. I mean, you kind of just read, can easy just to read through that glibly, but we must understand what's going on here. It's, it's significant. So what is the reason that Pharaoh must set free the people of Israel? Well, they must be permitted 
Verse 3 says, to hold a feast for the Lord in the wilderness, which will take them a three-day journey. And they do that in order that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So why does God want to set free the people of Israel? He wants to set them free, and it's told us right up here up front, in order that they celebrate him and that they worship him. That's the purpose of the Exodus, that Israel may worship their God. And why is that? Because you think, well, isn't the purpose of the Exodus just to set Israel free from their pain and their slavery? Well, that's a byproduct, but the ultimate reason for their deliverance is going to be worship. And why is this? Well, worship is the purpose of our lives. Okay, if, if God is your God and you are his people, then what do you do with your life? But you worship him. And that's precisely the reason why the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first answer, says the following. Well, the question is, what is the chief end of man? What's the, purpose, what's the point of life? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we see essentially the Westminster Shorter Catechism here in God's instruction to Pharaoh that he is setting free Israel in order that they may glorify him and enjoy him, that they may have a feast to, to, to his honor and celebrate him and worship him. And that's exactly the purpose of every single one of our lives here. And that's exactly what God designed for Israel. Well, how then does Pharaoh respond? We'll look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh asks here the, the central question that lies at the heart of the entire book of Exodus. And that is, well, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Who is the true God? Who is the sovereign king who alone has the right to demand praise and obedience from every creature? Who is he? And it's clear to us here that Pharaoh is ignorant of God. He's ignorant of who he is. In fact, he, he tells us very plainly that he doesn't know the Lord. But we must understand that his question of who is the Lord, that's not an innocent question. Okay, he's not asking that question with the view to, that he may genuinely understand and know the true God. No, he's asking it in a, in a sneering manner, saying, who is the Lord? You know, who is this God that I should bother to listen to him and, and let my subjects go. What authority does he have over me? None at all. I don't know him, so therefore I'm not going to let Israel go. Hey, remember we saw last week the Egyptians believed Pharaoh was a god, so he, this is a part of his problem. He believes he's God. He's not subject to anyone else. 
But Pharaoh's logic is that because he doesn't acknowledge the authority of the true God, that means, well, he is not required to obey him. And you see, Pharaoh's attitude is characteristic of every unbeliever, of everyone outside of Christ, everyone who has not bowed the knee to Christ, every single one of us before we receive Christ by faith. We were like Pharaoh. And outside of Christ, in unbelief, it's not as if we were innocent in our unbelief. It's not as if we just didn't know some facts. No, Romans 5.10 tells us that in our unbelief, we were enemies of God. And the reality is that unbelief in God is, is, is not innocent. It's not just having a lack of information. It's not some sort of you know, minor oversight on our part. Yeah, unbelief is, lies at the heart of sin, actually. And Pharaoh's unbelief was intertwined with his rebellion against God. Yeah, he was God's enemy. And we see this in his words in verse 2. It's implicit in his statement here in verse 2 is that while he refuses to obey God and know God, he can't get around the fact that God exists. And you see, the reason for this is that Pharaoh, like every single human being that has ever walked the face of this earth, knows this truth, knows deep down, though sin may press it down and, and distort it, everyone knows that there's a God. And the reason for that is, well, we all created in God's image. So as church father St. Augustine said, the African church father, he said, we all, we all created with a God-shaped hole. Yeah, we, we know deep down. We may suppress it, but we know. And the other way that we all know, no one has got an excuse, is that we just need to look outside. The beauty of creation. And we know that God is the creator of his creation. This is what Romans 1, 19 to 20 tells us. Is for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's not one person on the planet, whether it's a member of a, a, a remote tribe in the Amazon to somebody in the Middle East to Aborigine in Australia, that is without excuse. Everyone is going to be justly judged by God because knowledge about God, has, he has made it plain to them through his creation. So all of us at a deep level know that God exists. And unbelievers like Pharaoh will try their best to suppress this truth as best they can because of sin. But deep down, everyone knows. 
And the reason why most people on this earth will continue to reject God despite knowing that God is, is real is that most of us want to keep on sinning because we're slaves to sin. And we prefer to dis, we disobey, they disobey because they're ignorant and they choose to remain ignorant so that they, keep, that they can keep on sinning. And so it's this perverse cycle that we see unfolding here with Pharaoh. Okay, despite the clear signs that God is real and those signs are going to become even more in your face for Pharaoh as Exodus carries on. He doesn't repent of his unbelief and believe in the true God, which is the correct response to being confronted with the reality to God. Instead, he persists in, persists in his rebellion, knowing that God's real, in disobedience. Why? Well, he loves his sin more than he loves God. And verse 5 shows us just the extent of his rebellion in the face of having been confronted by the living God through Moses and Aaron. How does he respond to their request, or ultimately God's request to let the people of Israel go? Do they submit to that? No, because he, he's still flatly in rebellion to the Lord and he orders, says to the people, get back to work. You're actually lazy now because you want a holiday in the desert. I'm gonna, you obviously got time on your hands. I'm gonna increase your load. And so he increases level of brutality to even greater extents by commanding them that they're going to have to find their own straw to make bricks. Okay, the Egyptians used straw in making their clay bricks as a type of reinforcement to, to strengthen the bricks and that straw was provided to them before. Now they need to go around and forage it for themselves and make the bricks in the same way in this, and producing the same, uh, keeping to their, their original production keeping up with their numbers as if um, they, the situation before where they had been provided with the straw. So they've been put in a very unfair situation, an unjust situation. But this is the extent to Pharaoh's tyranny, that in the face of God, he's going to lift up um, his fist, raise his fist to him, and even make things worse. So he's, he's digging in his heels. So to our second point, things don't go according to plan. And clearly the Israelites have been pushed now from the pan into the fire. And as if slavery wasn't bad enough already, now they're enduring a much crueler form of it. And the human cost was, you can only imagine, was much more extensive than the type of slavery they had been enduring beforehand, they had to you know, go out and find more straw. It added to the stress of keeping up production, led to more people getting worn out and people getting beaten and injuries and, and most probably deaths. They were unable to endure such, such a cruel load. Now, understandably, the people of Israel are irate. Moses and Aaron have just promised them that the Lord has heard their cry. That he's about to deliver them. And now instead of deliverance, what do they get? Well, they get more slavery and more cruel slavery. 
their burden is increased. And so this culminates them in confronting Moses and Aaron, verse 21, chapter 5. And they say, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. You can just imagine, poor Moses. I mean, after eventually plucking up the courage to go and boldly confront Pharaoh in obedience to God, now it seems that precisely because of his obedience to God, everything's gone pear-shaped. That he's done exactly what God asked him to do and has just made things worse. And so he he turns to the Lord in in verses 22-23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, so Moses, now he blames everything on God. Yeah, the increased suffering of the people, even questions why God even bothered to call him and send him in the first place. And then he accuses God of not delivering of his promise to, to save his people. Now Moses is, is not unique in his sinful attitude here. See, how do we respond when things don't go according to plan? Especially when we do what God has called us to do and it makes things worse. Think of some examples. Think of, say, a missionary who's been called off to to the mission field in some remote land and while he's on the field, all his children die of some tropical disease. True stories. Or what about if you share the gospel with an unbelieving friend and that sharing of the gospel leads to the destruction of that friendship? Or what about a pastor who faithfully preaches the word of God to his church and the church shrinks, doesn't grow. Now you see, I think the problem with many of us is that we've been influenced by the prosperity gospel teaching, which is in the air we breathe in church context around here. And then that is going to say something like, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you do the will of God, well, God owes you then. You, you, you guarantee, you've got a whole lot of guarantees. You're guaranteed to live a blessed life, which in their definition is a whole lot of money, um, perfect health and happiness, far business class for the rest of your life, you know, all of that stuff. The, the, this here and now blessings. You live your best life now. But if bad things happen, well... Sorry, that's on you. Uh, your lack of faith, you haven't tithed enough, you're living in some sort of hidden sin or some sort of obedience, disobedience. Now, 
you know, let's qualify all this to say this. There's certainly many blessings in living a life of obedience to the word of God. Okay, we, we are promised we are promised that in places like the Proverbs. But we must understand that it's not a magic formula. Okay, that one plus one equals two. There are certain things that certainly give us blessing and common sense things. You know, obedience to God's word is going to, in a large part, keep us out of trouble. Okay, keep us out of doing stupid things that are going to harm us. But at the same time, Living in obedience to God is not a, a guarantee that nothing's going to go wrong. That's the, we live in the reality of the sin-cursed world, and we look no further than Job to see that. Job was a righteous man. He ticked all the boxes, and he experienced calamity. So none of us are promised a pain-free and trouble-free life in this age. We live in the midst of a sin-cursed world, and in the wisdom of God... He permits suffering in our lives. But even in the midst of the sin-cursed world, the truth is that God remains sovereign. It's not as if he's, he's looking down upon the world and he's wringing his hands in despair and he's seeing all these things un- unfold out of his control. No, in spite of everything that's going on in the world... God remains perfectly in control. We must never lose sight of this, especially in the midst of the chaos of our world. Okay, this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1 says. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God wills ultimately everything that happens. That's what it's saying. But it gives the rest of the paragraph two important qualifications that God's not the author of sin and God doesn't violate the will of his creatures. The truth is that God remains in control even when things don't go the way we think they should go. Even when they're when chaos ensues, even in July 2021, where it felt like the whole country was going to burn up. Guess what? God was still sovereign, sitting on his throne in that tumultuous time. He's still sovereign and they're out in the midst of our hardships, the midst of our pain. When the world falls apart, God is still working out his perfect plan and accomplishing his perfect sovereign purposes. Nothing here can derail any of those things. So you may think, well, doesn't this then make God cruel and unloving? You know, surely if, if, if he loves us, he'd spare us from as much pain as, as he could. Well, it's precisely because he loves us that he permits pain in our lives. This is what Hebrews 12, verse 6 is, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
Hey, the Lord uses hardships to draw us closer to him. And if we've walked the Christian life long enough, we know that to be true. Looking back on what's happened. He uses pain to work sanctification in our lives. He uses pain to help us trust in him. He uses times when things don't go exactly how we think they should go to teach us patience. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And yet he promises in the midst of all the mess to still preserve us and to be with us by his Spirit through all of it. To never leave you or forsake. And so even when it seems, when all is lost, when there's absolutely no hope, or you can know that God's plans have not in any way been derailed. In fact, everything is just going according to plan. He's still in charge and he's using all things, even the bad things, for his good and for his glory. Now just think about it. The Israelites were in Egypt in slaves, as slaves for most part of 400 years. And you would think, well, are they waiting 400 years for God to save them? He could have brought them out of Egypt like that after the first year of slavery, maybe. But he didn't. In his wisdom, he chose not to do so. But these were his people that he loved. Instead, he chose to do things the way he did in, at the right time and in the manner that he did. Why? So that he could get glorified. And so this is why God permits suffering in our lives. Okay, and it's especially suffering that happens in our lives precisely because we obey God, like we see with Moses here. And he does this in order that we trust him more. That we don't just get complacent and in doing things in our own strength and in our own abilities so that we can be you know, proud of our own gifts and you know, work in our own flesh. If Israel had just kind of walked out of Egypt one day with, with absolutely no opposition from Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, oh, yeah, you guys can go. No, no, no problem. Cheers. Well, think of what could have happened. Moses probably would have boasted in his diplomatic abilities. Israel would have not got to witness the mighty hand of God destroying the gods of Egypt, opening up the Red Sea, performing all those amazing signs and wonders, seeing the hand of God in action and delivering them. They wouldn't have got to see that. And so God permitted this prolonged struggle for Israel in order to teach her to trust him, that he would be glorified in delivering them in the mighty way that he did. So bring us to our final point. God is faithful. Now, in response to, to Moses' complaint to God that he's let Israel down, 
that he's not delivered them, that he's actually worked evil. Well, how does God respond? Well, verse 1, chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out. So he reminds them of promises. Moses, look, I'm still going to save them. Just chill. And he then goes on. I'm not going to read the, all the verses, but have them open in front of you. The verses after that, till about verse 7, where God spells out to Moses, reminds them of his great covenant promises that he's made to them through their father, Abraham. So he's saying there that God is still, you think God is asleep and that he's abandoned you wrong. God is still very much at work delivering his people, even if Moses and the Israelites cannot perceive it. His covenant promises are true. Even if Israel moans and complains and accuses him of, of doing evil, and then God reaffirms his covenant promise. And it's reaffirmed by these series of I wills. Okay, showing that the sovereignty of God in all of this. It's, God's going to do it. What is God going to do? Well, he has heard their cry for help. And he will most certainly deliver them from slavery. He will redeem them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. With great acts of judgment. It says in verse 6. And he will take them. He has a covenant promise. The covenant of grace, he will take them to be his own people and he will be their God. And they shall know that he is their God who has saved them. And God promises them that he will single-handedly complete this work of salvation. He will do it from beginning to end. He will save them to the uttermost. He will give them the new land. He will release them from slavery. He will grant it all to them that they will be his people and he, their God, he will do this all as a free gift of grace. How then do they respond to this amazing gospel promise? Verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. It's a heartbreaking statement. So does God then abandon his plans to save his people because by this point they're quite faithless, to be honest. They're quite over it. No. We carry on reading verses 10 to 13. God continues to speak to Moses as if Moses hasn't even said anything to that effect that the people don't believe. He says, just, he's like, just go back to Pharaoh and, and tell him that, um, that you need to set the people free. It, it's business as usual. God is going to achieve his purposes of salvation no matter what. Despite the stubbornness of Pharaoh, despite Moses complaining, despite Israel's faithlessness. So to bring this all together here, 
when things don't go according to, to our plans, when we jump from the, the pan into the fire, when we're facing hardships and, and perhaps even paying a price for our obedience to the Lord, well, of course, like the Israelites, it can be easy to lose hope. It can be easy to lose faith that God is going to do for us what he's promised. And there's a temptation that just like the Israelites, we begin to stop listening to God and become faith, faithless and even harbor bitterness and rebellion toward the Lord. We must understand that there's the end point of faithlessness and we you know, see that in you know, one of the main characters in Exodus, and that is in form of Pharaoh. Okay, the end point of that, the, the, the destination of that road of faithlessness is hard hearted unbelief. Pharaoh, who loved his sin more than God, and we know that that ultimately leads to destruction. So, where's the hope in all this? Well, the hope is that these same covenant promises that the Lord made to Israel, beginning of chapter 6, that he would grant them a land of their own, that he would deliver them from slavery in Egypt, that he would redeem them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, that they would be his people and he would be their God. All these covenant promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ does God deliver us from slavery by setting us free from the power of sin, by breaking the hold sin once had over us as we were slaves to it. He forgives us our sins through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Only in Christ does God bring us into the true promised land, which is, as Hebrews 11 tells us, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new creation. And only in Christ are we adopted as God's own beloved sons that we may call him Abba Father, that he is our God and we are his beloved people, his own children. And so what then is the only appropriate response to this free gift of grace? Well, listen to Jesus' words in Mark 1.15. It says, repent and believe in the gospel. What do you need to repent of? Well, you need to repent of your unbelief, your ignorance of God, your willful rebellion against him. And you need to believe and receive these gospel promises by faith. We, we, you, you cannot remain unmoved or passive in the light of the promises of the gospel in Christ. As we know, as Hebrews eleven six tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. But the thing is, it's not our faithfulness that saves us. Despite Israel's doubts, God remained faithful to his promises to save them. And it's the same with us. 
Yes, we, we need to respond in faith and repentance to Christ. Hey, that, that's the necessary requirement to receive the gospel. But the reality is that our lives are often plagued with doubts and with faithlessness and, and struggles, continual struggles with sin. The good news is that our salvation doesn't rest on our own faithfulness. Instead, it rests upon the perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus has perfectly kept the covenant. Only Jesus has been perfect in his sinlessness throughout his time on earth. Only he is the truly righteous one. That's why 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in Christ. Trust in him who has faithfully obeyed the Father in every way, in living the perfect life during his time on earth that none of us could live, in being obedient to death on the cross, a death that all of us deserve because of our sins. And trust in Jesus who then clothes you with his perfect righteousness, who forgives you your sins, who reconciles you to the Father. And trust in the one who's faithful and true, who is faithful even when we are faithless and who saves you to the uttermost, bringing you into the land of of promise where he will be your people, where he will be your God, and you, we will be his people. Amen.